Hello and welcome back to the CIPD podcast. Last year was another year of corporate scandals. Google, Facebook, Volkswagen. Now, with failures like those fresh in all our minds, we're going to start 2019 by talking about trust. What does trust bring to an organisation? How does human connection fit in? And where in that landscape does HR sit? We chose four experts to interrogate those questions. Our first writes and researches about tech and how it's transforming trust. She lectures at Oxford University's Said Business School and she's the author of a great book called Who Can We Trust? Here's Rachel Botsman. Often I go into organisations and they talk, they're talking a lot about trust. And one of the first things you, I ask them is, well, what is it? And it's really interesting because this is a generalization, but when you're talking to marketing and communications, even HR, they tend to describe it as an attribute. So the number of organizations that have trust as a value is astonishing to me. You know, so they'll have like curiosity and uh, motivation and trust, which is really strange because I don't know what to do with trust as a value. And then if you talk to other parts of the organization, often leadership teams, um, compliance, legal, they will talk about trust as an asset something that they actually want measured and valued and it's not that I don't think trust isn't either one of those things it's that you can't achieve trust you can't achieve trust in an organization if you think of trust in that way so the way you have to think of trust is it's a human feeling and it's a continuous process and it's something that is given to you it's something that you have to earn With tech reaching into all areas of our home and work lives, organisations want our trust. But they want to win it easily and they want to win it fast. And that, says Rachel, just doesn't work. Yeah, efficiency, the way I I think of it, efficiency is the enemy of trust. So think of your own life. Trust actually needs time. It needs continual investment and effort. And it needs friction. Trust is actually built in those moments where you're not sure of that other person you navigate through and one of the watchouts in organizations is this idea that we can automate trust um, that we can uh, use technology to speed people through that process and you see it a lot with apps Um, and the mistake is that you have their trust where you don't you just have convenience so this is a challenge in terms of deciding where for example bots can play a role and what we can automate and then fundamentally what really needs to stay human Um, because I I believe the businesses that will win in the future will be the ones that use technology to become the most human and they are the ones that we will trust. But if speed and tech don't build real trust what does? It's small interactions and actions over time that build trust the example Brenny Brown talks about the marble jar you know whether you fill up the marble jar I like this term the trust brattery um, that Toby the CEO of Shopify um, really codified and this idea that you know actions and interactions and conversations and whether we do what we say you're going to do and whether we show up at the time they're recharging or decharging the battery so the consequence of this diminishing trust battery what does it mean for organizations Low trust teams and cultures tend to be, I go so far as very unhealthy places to work. It's pretty easy now to walk in and actually spot 
a low trust team and it, very few organizations are low trust you know across the board you often find pockets where the battery is really really charged but the signs are they are very uncomfortable with risk taking they are really uncomfortable with not knowing the outcomes of things so they tend to be very prescriptive and quite linear so they have to know where everything is leading they tend to have a lot of people in meetings high email culture very extensive briefs and presentations and so it becomes paralyzing if rachel's description of low trust organizations sounds a bit familiar It's worth remembering that trust isn't just nice to have, it's vital. There is a really tight link between low trust cultures and cultures that struggle to innovate. You know, you can walk into a high trust team and one of the most common characteristics is the leader of that team doesn't know where it's going to end. They have faith in the process, they have faith in their people, they give them a lot of autonomy around the risk taking. I think vulnerability is another sign of a high trust team so leaders often say particularly male leaders like I, I really want my team to trust me more like it's like, like yeah have <laughs> make it happen yeah make it happen <laughs> and it's often not a competence question it's because they are very uncomfortable showing vulnerability of course smart leaders know that inspiring trust really matters And we've all seen leaders conveniently produce some little piece of information about themselves that neatly demonstrates how vulnerable they are. Little do they know just how good most of us are at spotting that sort of manoeuvre. We're unbelievably good at picking up signals. We're unbelievably good at picking up trust signals we've tried to fabricate. So there's nothing worse when the CEO tries to do the really authentic vulnerable speech where you (laughs) just know it's not really them yeah so I think you know authenticity I think is a really it's a really tricky word for many people like show up and be your authentic self but I find when you talk to people and you talk about integrity and you talk about benevolence so um, how do you show up and genuinely care about people how do you show up and show empathy how do you show up and continually demonstrate that your interests and motives towards me are aligned with my interests and motives. That's easier for people to do than this pressure of being authentic selves at work. And so I think there's something really powerful in the language of trustworthiness that actually leads to healthier teams. The trust relationship with a new employer has its origins long before your first day on the job. It starts with the employer brand and how they recruit But how often do their values and the actual experience of working there match what they said on their website? That mismatch interests our next expert, psychologist John Amici. His expertise is all about performance and his interest began in his early years as a professional athlete in the US, where he became the first Brit to play in America's NBA league. My name is John Amici. I'm an organisational psychologist, also recently a Chartered Fellow of CIPD. This phrase, aligning personal and business values, we hear it a lot. What do you actually mean by it? I think businesses should have values that speak to both the excellence that they plan to practice externally and with stakeholders and internally with their own people. 
and necessarily those values will attract people who should be aligned not just to the commercial possibilities of that organization but the the experience that they are bound by those values to deliver part of what i think is important for workplaces is to, is to create an environment that is so psychologically safe that you can challenge people to the ultimate level knowing that the environment is actually safe for them to uh, experiment, deliver, fail, and then succeed finally with the support that you offer them. You say knowing. I mean, that's where the issue lies, isn't it? That is a trust contract because you don't know, do you? When you go and work for an organisation, you look at the website, you meet some people, you do some interviews. All organisations present an appropriate face to the world and potential mm-hmm. recruits now. You don't know what it, what the experience of working there will be like, and it's often quite a mismatch. So, I mean, I think firstly what we should do is probably reframe that what we're saying is that organizations lie. That's actually what we're saying. Organizations lie in order to create a brand. It, it's, like, it's like people who airbrush photographs to make people who are already thin and beautiful into unattainably thin and beautiful. Um, and in some cases, people who aren't beautiful into people who are beautiful <laughs> in, the, in this corporate analogy. Sure. So they lie. And then people come and become instantly disenfranchised and leave. And then we call the people who leave snowflakes. We call them entitled. We call them all the things that we call millennials and Gen Zs. Yeah, I suppose organizations might say, well, the deal is we pay. So that's our side of the contract. In that case, if that was the contract, tell the truth and pay. But they don't do that because they know in order to attract the talent they need, they'd have to pay 10 times more if they told the truth. And that is a terrible indictment. So in terms of productivity and sustainability and all the things we we know about, that lie, in your terms, is a foolish lie Mm -hmm. because uh, it it doesn't even work commercially, let alone on other other bases. Who should then be, within these organisations, the guardian of better behaviour? Is it HR? Mm. Is it the board? They have conflicting requirements. Where does it live? Uh, Well... I don't. I think HR has a unique role in that now they are more often than not called the people function. They are the people people. But it's not just their responsibility. There should be a cascade effect in an organization. So yes, you have to have congruent behaviors and the right rhetoric at the top level at the exco. And then underneath, you need to find people. And there are tons of people who want to be custodians of that culture. They want to be the people who are charged in a non-official capacity, right? So this is not about giving them elevated roles or elevated salaries. Giving them this responsibility, you, yeah, you're keen on this? Yes, be a vanguard in this organization. You're, you work on our front desk in reception. You clean our floors. You're a first-time manager. You're just a colleague who's really interested. Yes, you disseminate this. Yes, you remind people these are the values and the behaviors that go along with them. That's not a difficult thing. It's exactly the kind of purpose that Gen Zs and millennials we are working with are asking for. You say it's not a difficult thing, but organisations find it difficult to do, don't they? I can think of a number, particularly in the tech and social media space, organisations who literally launched their brand off those values and that way of working and who are now, it's being revealed, excusing behaviour on the part of senior and valued individuals that is not at all aligned to those values. So... The theory is great. The practical reality is tough for organisations to do, isn't it? They're no. not excusing it, but they're not doing it. Why aren't they doing it? Because it's easier not to, and we don't call them on it enough. If there are no consequences for bad behaviour, why would you spend the energy to be behaved well? I mean, obviously, there are consequences if it's illegal behaviour. But there's not. Amazon has got workers who live in their car, in the car park of their warehouse. It's not conjecture. 
but we still get Amazon packages. There's no consequence. So to build a genuine and sustainable trust contract in these relationships, what needs to happen on all sides? Um, you say we don't call organisations out on it. We, what we as employees, we as consumers, we as, stakeholders. We, what we can do is we can values-based hire people so we know that these values are something that's important to them, yes, but that they are empowered to enforce. Shami Chakraborty is a household name. She's Shadow Attorney General and a member of the House of Lords. She's a barrister, and for over a decade, she headed Liberty, the advocacy group which promotes civil liberties and human rights. She talked to me about social media and data tracking and how invasive employers should be. I think this whole question of employee data and digital presence is, um, is a very sensitive one, and I think the answer needs to evolve. Um, as so often with um, technology, um, it moves apace and the ethics, the politics, the law, um, all that stuff of human relationships sort of lags behind. And I think there are some really, really um, difficult questions that, about what the reasonable expectation is. For example, um, everyone is a broadcaster now. Everyone who, who tweets or otherwise uses social media is, um, is interacting not just with their, their friends, colleagues and relatives, but with the world. Now, what does that mean for the balance between the reputation of the employer organisation um, and the, the, the social needs and expectations of the employee? There isn't a bright line here. There isn't a, a straightforward answer. It's obviously going to vary according to the organisation, according to the role, according to perhaps the seniority of the person in that role. Um, it, it, it's so common these days to see, for example, um, senior BBC journalists tweeting um, with that famous caveat that, um, that these are their own views and not those of the organisation. But does that work in practice? Uh, and, and, and how would it work if, uh, if a senior diplomat or civil servant or, dare I say it, judge was tweeting or otherwise using a, a, a very public social media platform in their personal capacity? Is there such a thing as a personal capacity as opposed to a public face? And what does, that, what does that mean for employee and employer? It's a vital debate, isn't it? Because it's about trust, isn't it? In employers, in employees, in organisations, in, in the people who run organisations, government, in every area of our interaction, our trust is becoming a thing. It's, it's, a, it's a commodity for organisations. And this, it all rests on this, doesn't it? I think that data is a commodity. Trust is priceless. The problem is whose trust? And sometimes you're, you're, you're protecting and trying to earn the trust of one constituency at the expense, at the expense of another. So, for example, um, when you're recruiting, you might think that it's just common, reasonable practice in the 21st century to have a look at the digital footprint of applicants for a job. And it's commonly done. Commonly done. Uh, not not um, illegal, not unethical. People are putting this stuff in the public domain. But, 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 how does your workforce feel if, um, if they think you might be putting them under uh, overly 
intrusive scrutiny. Snooping. Snooping on them. Can you snoop on someone even in a public place? Well, of course you can. You can snoop on uh, on someone by following them around the street, and you can do the same even with their digital footprint. So there's got to be some negotiated balance um, if you're not to make your your workforce feel mistrusted and therefore not trusting in you. So you articulated the problem. What needs to happen? I think more conversation, and I think that means conversations within um, within society and the democratic space, but also in particular organisations. Because I think to some extent these accommodations will be and ought to be um, bespoke uh, depending on the nature of the, of the work. This trust contract between employers and their people is being discussed everywhere. Which expectations and behaviours are ethical and acceptable and which aren't? Dan Schwabel is a New York Times best-selling author and research director at Future Workplace. He believes that re-establishing that trust isn't just a matter for organisations. It's an issue for entire nations. France has the right to disconnect, so you can't email a worker on uh, off hours. Daimler, the car company in Germany, has mail on holiday, so if you email a worker when they're on vacation, your email is automatically deleted. Same with Volkswagen and Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global. They've, they've followed suit on that. And what I think that even countries are doing is trying to provide a little bit more protections for workers, especially in countries with strong labor unions. Like, like in Germany, they're fighting for a 28-hour work week. In Japan, you get Monday mornings off uh, because workers who are overworked end up burning out and that becomes counterproductive and leads to higher turnover. Do you think it also sends a trust message to the employees on the receiving end of the emails that don't arrive now that it is about, we do care about you? Yeah, I think that people want to be treated as people first, workers second. We spend over a third of our lives working and especially in America where I'm based, people, the average work week's 47 hours a week. Here it's over 50 hours a week not having your phones is the, the new vacation. And because we're constantly being connected and responding to emails outside of office hours and on vacations, we need some give rather than just take. Sounds like change is coming, doesn't it? There's more on Trust on the website. And if you'd like to share your own thoughts about it, please do. The hashtag is at CIPD Podcasts. We'll be back on the first Tuesday of every month this year. Subscribe to the whole series on Apple, Google or any other podcast app. Thanks for listening.